Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning. I'm going to actually, being that I have kind of finished, in some sense, the seven churches of Revelation, and now we're heading into the holidays, but I, I wanted to, to just go back, and I want you to take your Bibles actually turn, first of all, to Matthew chapter 24. And remember, in the last uh, several messages, the five warnings the Lord Jesus gave the churches, and also the two churches identified in Revelation as having no warnings or condemnations, again, reminding you that the church is the main instrument on earth, the main institution on earth that the Lord has ordained to get the gospel to the world and to sanctify those who have obeyed the gospel and have become part of the body of Christ. The church remains the lampstand that holds the light and its commission to share the light in its area. So then the one great mission of the church is to share the light. I've been saying that every single week. However, in each of the five churches that were warned about their sin, they were also given counsel to repent of their sin so that the light of the gospel would not be further diminished. God's mercy also gave the churches counsel how to rescue, how to be rescued from their backslidden condition. And of course, the way was to repent of that sin, put it to death, and get back to where they fell from. Of course, you hear Christ say in Revelation 2.5, that if they don't do that, then they will no longer bear the light and God will remove that church or remove the lampstand, which is the church, unless they repent. So they were to follow that, and if they repented, the first church were, was to repent of declining love. The second church was to repent of allowing the truth to slip by tolerating bad doctrine influenced by the culture. The church, the third church was to repent of its compromising with sin and tolerating sinful practices in the church. The fourth church was warned that they should repent of sinful complacency, meaning that church where they, they were uh, self-satisfied without being aware of the possible dangers. And then, of course, the fifth church, Laodicea, was the church of spiritual indifference. They lacked interest, care, and concern for specially spiritual things, and the church became lukewarm. And of course, when the church becomes lukewarm, God, for, for the Lord, that is a nauseating condition, and he does not like it at all. Uh, and wants the church to repent. Now, many believe that this, this last church uh, is kind of the church that's going to be more at the end of the church age. Uh, and we're, of course, pretty much are at the end of the church age. Uh, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. Uh, so if the church does not bear and hold the light of the gospel of Christ, who will hold it? No one will hold it. So the message to all the seven churches have been given in the backdrop of the coming of the Lord. The Lord is coming. That's one of the motivations to keep being faithful. So upon Christ's return to the earth, 
it will be exceedingly difficult for sinners to believe upon Christ. It will become exceedingly difficult for churches to do regular ministry. It will be exceedingly difficult to do the regular, normal things that we're so comfortable with and used to because of the times that are coming. Now, there are several reasons for this, and that's why I want want you to look at Matthew 24. The first reason, during the time of the end for these difficulties is that the times themselves will be difficult for all people, especially for true believers. If you notice in Matthew 24, verse number 9, it says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, of course, there it's showing there's a difficult time coming. In fact, Paul telling young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, he says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And why will those times come? And why will they be difficult? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness without, although they have denied its power, and the Bible says, avoid such people, avoid these people, stay away from those people. They are infectious. They are poison to the church and to the gospel, to your own Christian growth in life. Also, during the time of the end, there will come a time when an apostasy from the faith will occur. And I'm going to look more about that in Thessalonians this morning. In other words, in Matthew 24, verse 10, it says, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Fall away from what? Well, I'm going to look at that. And then, third thing, during the time of the end, as the truth of the gospel advances, so will the lies of the devil. And it says in Matthew 24, verse 11, notice, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. It will be a time marked by unprecedented spiritual deception and demonic darkness. If I turn over to 1 Peter, 2 Peter, which I want to get to in January, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying 
the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Are there false teachers today? Maybe false teachers that you don't even consider to be false teachers. Let me just mention one of them. Joel Osteen has the largest church in the U.S. But don't be deceived by the size and success. The best he has to offer is that he is a positive thinker and a motivational speaker. He wants his followers to have their best life now. Actually, he wrote a book, Your Best Life Now. But other sound pastors and theologians, when Osteen is evaluated through the lens of Scripture, he lines more up with being a false teacher than a true teacher. And be sure, discernment is very much needed in this area because some of you may have listened to him and maybe you still do. I warned you to stop listening to him. And when I get to Second Peter, as I just mentioned, sometimes this coming year, you will find that included in the message of the epistle of Second Peter, the Apostle Peter actually warns the church that false teachers are coming. When you keep reading to Jude, to Jude says they're already here. And when you get to reading Jude, you'll find that that's exactly the case. He was actually going to write on something else, but that was such a great burden by the Holy Spirit on his heart, he decided to write on the false teachers are here. And some have evaluated Osteen as being a pagan religionist. He is a quasi-pantheist. That means he believes all religions are a way to God. That Jesus Christ is not exclusive. The only way, the truth and the life to God. He also thinks that people have the power within themselves to change their lives. He says anyone can create, create by dreams and words the things he desires. Of course, that is the health, wealth, happiness, and success mantra of that movement for a long time. In fact, this has been considered the law of attraction, the health and wealth system. It appeals to the, the based sinful lusts and passions of the corrupt human heart. Osteen says that God wants to give you the desires of your heart. Well, if you're considering Psalm 34, you have to delight yourself in the Lord first before he gives you the desires of your heart. And if you delight in the Lord first, your desires will be his desires and not your own. That's not what he means. And by the way, God's word for Osteen is not the Bible but the word that comes to him and his people mystically and spiritually that tells them what they should want. It is the health, wealth, and prosperity camp, uh, and that is their usual mantra all the time. Believe, visualize, and speak out. You can create your own reality. 
Matter of fact, that's how one gets what they want. Actually, Osteen said that I know these things are true because they work for me and my wife. That's the philosophy of pragmatism. You know, pragmatism has been around in the United States for 40 years. And in fact, facts, pragmatism is a homespun-ism. It's an Americanism. What does it say? If it works for me, it must be true. Whether it's true or not is not the matter. What, it, what, what the matter is is that if it creates for me a good reality and it works for me, then it's true for me. It may not be true for you, but it's true for me. And whatever's true for you is true for you. So in other words, you can believe anything you want. And it, it doesn't have to be examined by anybody, and that's the culture we live in right now. Believe what you want. Doesn't mean, you know, your, your opinion is just as valid as the next person. It's not examined by anything truthful or any standard. So what's the source of all this kind of teaching? Well, it's the source of Satan himself. This is how the mystery of iniquity is working in the world to deceive people to think they are doing fine when they are not doing fine, that everything is peaceful when things are not peaceful in the spiritual sense. So when in reality they think they are secure, and yet they are on the broad road that leads to hell. So this is satanic, and his teaching is satanic, it's not just off-center, it is demon-manufactured and propagated. Because the health, wealth, prosperity, and the fulfillment of your dreams and desires, that is what Satan always offers to people. He'll give you what you want. That's what he'll do. And he'll give it to you until you're destroyed. And you know what that's called? That's really called temptation. He will tempt you. He will present something to you, and then when you take it and you grab it, then it will be conceived in you, and you will bear forth sin. So, based on the lust of the flesh, on the lust of the eyes, and on the pride of life, this is what the corrupt, fallen unregenerate people want all the time. That is why it works so well. That's why it gathers so large crowds is because that's what people really want. See, Satan turns sinful temptation into honorable desires. And the reason why these false teachers are so su successful what, in what they do is because they are in league with the devil. Well, that's false Christianity. It's a false view of God. It's a twisted view of Scripture. Listen to what the first John tells us. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world's passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, 
It is the last hour. And just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know it is the last hour. So when you see an entertainer like Kanye West be pretty much um, endorsed by Osteen and then him turning around and endorsing Osteen as legitimate Christian teaching and ministry, that's very problematic. And it looks good, it sounds good, it's attractive, and we would think, well, that can't be wrong because of all the things connected to it, but if you don't look at it through the lens of Scripture, you will be deceived. See, there are many false prophets today. See, Satan is working most through religion. That's how he deceives people. He's recruiting people to the narrow road through religion, but it's not the narrow road. It's actually the broad road. Because as many people as you want can get on it, and they think they're heading in the right direction, and they're find, they'll find out they're not. Unless the gospel comes in, the true gospel, and unless the Spirit of God convicts them of sin, they will head that way, and they will slip off into a lost eternity without Christ. So, during the end, as the true gospel advances, so will the lies of the devil. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Make sure it's not you. Also, during the time of the end, the hearts of people will grow cold because people will be a law unto themselves and disregard God's law and civil order. Look at Matthew 24, verse 14, or verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. So, in fact, the church is to bear the light of the gospel. And and just let me back up for a minute. I'm going to be, when I'm done with something and moving on to something, there's other things that come into my mind. But if you think that lawlessness will increase... Lawlessness where? Everywhere. Just think, in, just think in the last couple of years, how many police have been disrespected and even killed because of the rhetoric that has been generated? Or even now, that do you know that teachers are leaving their profession in the highest percentage ever for this reason? Because there is a lack of of consequences for unruly students and parents and administrations who do not back up the teachers where they cannot teach. Why? Because lawlessness is increasing in people's hearts from the lowest level, from the lowest grades. I'm not talking about high school. I'm talking about kindergarten, first grade, kids being violent and disruptive in the class and the parents not doing anything, and the administration's afraid to do anything. We live right now in the, these days. But thank the Lord, 
Well, one other passage. I, told, I said that the church is to bear the light of the gospel right up until the end. And if you notice in Matthew 24, 14, look what it says. It says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So this is God's plan. The gospel, no matter what time it is, how bad it gets, how dark it gets, the gospel is still going to be preached until the last person hears it, trusts Christ, and is saved. Only God knows that. And then the end will come. So God will be calling elect sinners to salvation by the irresistible call of the gospel right up until the day that Christ takes out his church and then, of course, Christ returns. The time of the return of Christ, God will have a people prepared to receive him. So this Lord's Day, let me consider that in the midst of all the difficulties of life, we must continue to meditate on what will happen, what will take place. So we are not duped and deceived. In this life, God permits his people to be troubled and plagued, either with wars or chaos or crimes of all kinds and other injuries. Through these things, God sets before us how unstable and fleeting all the goodness of mankind would be and how it is all humanity is subject to mortality, that they're heading down a bad road. So we must always be ready to contemplate the age to come. Such contemplation, I believe, transforms us and helps God's people to live according to the teachings of Christ, always considering ourselves as strangers and pilgrims on the earth who seek the joy and the peace of God's future kingdom because we'll not find it in fullness here. So thinking rightly about the end-time events will keep us awake and it will keep us sober it will also bolster, bolster our faith and bring really the comfort that we need in the midst of trials, especially those who will endure trials for the sake of the gospel itself, for the sake of living a holy life. Those who live holy will suffer persecution. So the Thessalonians, and that's where I want you to turn now, understood based on the Old Testament, that the day of the Lord began with a, with a period of intense earthly suffering and really serves as a prelude to Messiah's personal return to the earth. The Thessalonians had already demonstrated their resolve and perseverance under trials, where it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So they understood what it meant to have persecution, but since the first letter of 
1 Thessalonians, another letter came that was not written by the Apostle Paul, but was written by someone else. It's called a a pseudo-letter or a false letter. And in that letter, someone had concluded that they had indeed entered into a period called the Day of the Lord already. And brethren, if one day you woke up and someone you thought was in the know told you your persecution shows that we are already in the day of the Lord, well, when you were expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, you would be confused and frightened also. And so the second epistle of Second Thessalonians is coming to a people who are confused and frightened that somehow they missed the coming of the Lord and are now in the day of the Lord. And so that's why he writes. He writes to correct a false letter that came to the church. So the main concern in these matters is that the beloved Thessalonians would not be deceived. And that's the whole point of all Scripture, that we would not be deceived. Christians are in the know. We know what the truth is. And and the truth is going to help you evaluate everything else that's going on. So he detend, he intends, the Apostle Paul, to dispel their ignorance by teaching that the day of the Lord could not have already come or taken place. So these believers thought because of some false information that they were in the day of the Lord and they were in tribulation. The Apostle Paul explains to them and to us that the day of the Lord has not yet come because if it did... He says, you're still here. If you're the church and you're still here, then the day of the Lord didn't come. That's what what he gets at. So the, the, the day of the Lord cannot come as long as the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him has not taken place. So scripture records that there are certain things that must occur before the full force of God's eschatological judgment will be manifested. And so I want to kind of consider those three things that are going to be present before the day of the Lord comes, as spoken of in the Old Testament. And the first one is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And notice what he says there. He says, let no one in any way deceive you For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So the first thing that must occur before the day of the Lord is that there is going to be an apostasy. It must come first. You just can't get away from the force of what this particular text is saying. Don't be, be deceived and be led astray by such incorrect information. Paul, or excuse me, Peter broadens the warning, or excuse me, Paul broadens the warning to go beyond uh, the conversation in the letter, and he includes, listen, don't be tricked by anyone. Don't be gullible when a new deceiver or false teacher pulls off some stunt in a religion which gets your attention. He's saying here, listen, the word 
he uses here is that let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The word first means first of several in a sequence of happenings. In other words, the day of the Lord is not present unless first, in sequence within that day, there comes an apostasy. Now, the word apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, which is translated fall away in this passage. So the word is closely related to the Greek word for divorce or to be separated. It seems clear that the word here means a religious revolt. It is not clear, though, how whether Paul means a revolt of the Jews from God or the Gentiles from God or of Christians from God or of the apostasy that includes all classes within and without the body of Christians. Apostates are those who fall away from the true faith, abandoning what they formerly profess to believe. That's what an apostate is. The term really describes those whose beliefs are so deficient as to place themselves outside the scope of true Christianity. For example, a liberal denomination that places themselves outside the scope of true Christianity that denies the authority of Scripture or denies the deity of Christ, they would become an apostate denomination. Now note, don't forget that what the kingdom parables taught that we are in a seed-sowing age in which good wheat, which are the children of the kingdom, and imitation wheat, which are the children of the evil one, are mixed together and will be mixed together until the end of the church age. So there are wheat, true believers, and tares in the church. Now, saying that, it could be that it is the tares that begin to leave from inside the true church. Those who fall away into apostasy demonstrate that their faith was never real to begin with. In fact, 1 John writes about this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 19, listen to what he says. He says, and they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not of us. See, he's saying there that people are going to leave from inside the true church and they are going to deny the true faith and leave. Now, that could be very confusing to people. That could be very disheartening to people when that happens. Of course, true Christians do not apostatize. I want to emphasize that. They persevere until the end. Actually, if the title of my message is The Perseverance of the Saints, but I'm not going to get to that part this morning. That's next week. But there are some examples in Scripture of general apostasy. When Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, uh, verse 66, was preaching to the multitudes, they all left him. And he said, of course, you know, 
to his disciples, will you leave me? And they said, no, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. So they were disciples, but they were not true disciples. Because when Jesus really gave the gospel to them, they said, I'm not signing up for that. I'm out of here. We have Hymenius and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says there about them, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenius and Alexander, who have handed, who I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And then we have Demas in, in, uh, under Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. It says, For Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me. But he was following him, so he was with them. And believe me, those times when people you think are believers, and then all of a sudden something happened, like it says in the parable of the sower, some tribulation comes in their life, some difficulty comes in their life, something happens in their life, and all of a sudden they say, I'm gone, I'm gone, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this. A, believe, a real believer never does that. Because why? They know the truth. They hold to the truth. So these are all examples of a larger and a, a, a wider spread religious apostasy that will take place in the last days prior to the days of the Lord. Also, Scripture records that there is another thing that must occur before the full force of God's end-time judgment will be manifested. And what's the second thing right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3? The man of sin. It says, no one, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So I'm breaking up verse number three in these, these sections because it's a sequence of things that are taking place. It's not a one-time event. It's a sequence of events that happen. But Christians are not a, unaware of it. So the attributes of his character cannot be go, go unnoticed in the passage. Also, the prophet Daniel, where, where's Paul getting this information anyway? He's getting it from the prophet Daniel. Already had given a good description of the evil character of this end-time man. It says here that he's a man of lawlessness, who, who is not Satan. We are not talking about Satan here. He's energized by Satan, but he is not Satan. He's some definite person who is doing the work of Satan. But note here that the implication is that the man is hidden somewhere who will be suddenly manifest at a particular time. He will be revealed or disclosed at a particular time. Well, if we go back to Daniel... We find in Daniel that he gives and lays out his character. He says in Daniel 11:36, then the king will do as he pleases. That means he will be a man who is self-willed as he desires, meaning that he has an unchallengeable authority. Antichrist will arrogantly believe that he can function sufficiently well without any divine help. And so the bottom line is that Antichrist does whatever he wants when he's on the scene, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, without restraint, with no one ever questioning it, lest they be 
in trouble. A second thing that it says in our text is says that um, in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, that he is someone who is, the Antichrist will go far beyond anything the world has ever seen, not only because he is self-willed, but he also is egotistical. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he will exalt and magnify himself, meaning that he has a huge, a huge ego. And he's likable. He's a man of peace. The verbs used uh, uh, in Daniel is that he is like being his... He will exalt and magnify himself. Those are verbs in the Old Testament only used of God. And those who impiously assert, he impiously inserts himself against God. And then if you notice in our text here in 2 Thessalonians in verse 4, it says, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist will present himself to the world as being God. That's his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to present himself as the only one to be worshipped. So that means from Daniel 11.36, he's atheistic. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Antichrist will be an atheist and reject all religions except the one he establishes when he declares himself God. And then notice, notice verse number five, what he says. He says, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So P- Paul had already a long conversation with the Thessalonians about what's going to happen before the day of the Lord. So he's reminding them of something they should have already known, but somebody wrote a letter and confused them, and they didn't know what to believe, so Paul's reinfer- reaffirming what he first taught them. He's bringing them back to the truth. And then verse number 6 of chapter 2, it says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. So in other words, you know what's holding him back. That this, that is the, the man of lawlessness, this lawless one who is not Satan but some definite person who is doing the work of Satan and energized by Satan, hidden away somewhere, will be manifest. And when he is manifest, uh, he will be known. So the real purpose for the restraint is that it has a divine purpose. That is, the restraint is... He, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, may be revealed in his time at the proper time. In other words, when God wants him to be revealed. So the Lord's all in control of what's happening in the end time. That means something presently is being exercised to hold back the unveiling of this man of sin. One commentator said the restraint prevents the premature manifestation of the man of sin as the very embodiment of iniquity. So you see, this man of sin can only be revealed when the time is ripe, when history is ripe. 
And this man of lawlessness will only be revealed at a divinely appointed time. Yes, God knows how to control the activity and advancement of evil. So look at verse number 7. Here's the third thing, is that there's going to be removal of the restrainer. It says in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So you must agree with this passage that the aggressive forces of evil are already operative and evident all around us. Wherever we look, we see that there is lawlessness, that there is wickedness, and the wickedness is becoming unhinged, uncontrollable. People are not willing to do anything about it as we once did. So it was then, it is now, and maybe now in a greater extent. So who's the restrainer? Who does it refer to? Now, it says here, for the mystery of lawlessness. Now, the mystery does not mean something mysterious or unintelligible, but rather something formerly unknown but now is revealed. And Paul's revealing it to them and us. That is, something undiscoverable by mere human search is now only known when God reveals it. The lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians 2.7 is not simply referring to disorder or the violation of law, but is referring to what is behind the lawlessness. Behind the lawlessness is an aim of the devil to overthrow the law of God and establish his own rule. That's always behind lawlessness. When we see the crazy stuff going on and, and the, the, there's no sense at all on how they conclude those things, you know Satan has his fingerprints all over it. That's what he does. He deceives. And he does it to, he deceives through people. Through people that have their own agenda. So even though this evil man of sin is not revealed yet, the spirit that will permeate his career is already operational. Even though this lawlessness is working now, it is working under restraint. That means lawlessness is not as bad as it will be. Something is in the way of it fully gushing out. And that will not always be the case. The restrainer, it says in our text in verse 7, will be removed. Until it is taken out of the way. The only, in other words, literally, only the holding back now till out of the way he becomes. That whatever or whomever is performing the restraining function it will be taken out of the midst of everything, and then there will be a manifest, unrestrained, monstrous evil which will go to such depths that it will defy explanation and description. So who's the, who's the restrainer? Who's holding things back? Well, all sorts, all sorts of interpretations as you read through in commentaries. 
Some say it's the Roman Empire. Some say it's the human government. Some say it's Satan himself. Some say it's Elijah. Some say it's the angel Michael. Some say it's the preaching of the gospel. And others will say are saying different things. There are all kinds of interpretations of the passage. But the important question one must ask and answer is, what is able to hold back the endeavors of the Satan, the enemy? Who's powerful enough to do that? If Satan is the king, if Satan is the prince of power of the air, then I believe that there has to be someone very powerful to be able to hold him back. So the answer is only a supernatural being can truly hold back the workings of Satan. The fact that the restrainer will be out of the mist seems to speak of one who is now in the mist. This seems to point clearly to the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit of God, who is now here in person as an indweller of the saints and as an indweller of the temple of God. In other words, it is the church indwelt by the Spirit of God that is holding back the evil one. So you see how important the church is? You see how important holiness is and godliness? You see how important truth is? As we move through our life, the most important thing is going to be what you think about God and how you understand the Word of God and what's happening next. See, God doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to know these things so we know what to expect. So the indwelling spirit will be out of the mist of this present scene when the returning Christ calls its church to himself since the removal of the restrainer takes place before the manifestation of the lawless one, the lawless one or the evil one, this identification implies, and I believe the text implies, that it will be a pre-tribulational rapture. In other words, the church is going to be taken out before all these things take place. The church has to be removed so satanic iniquity can, and lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness can explode into the world. Now, I need, I need to remind you that it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will be taken out, but the restrainer, meaning this, that the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. The difference lies in the change of meeting between residence and, and presence. As a member of the Godhead, the Spirit is omnipresent. He always has been in the world. He was there when the world was created. And he certainly will continue to be present during the seven-year seven -year tribulation period. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit assumed the special relationship to the church as its indweller, as its teacher as its giver of scripture. But after the completion of his work in the church, he will resume the relationship to mankind he had before Pentecost. So it doesn't mean the Spirit of God is removed completely. The Spirit of God now works 
during the tribulation in a different way because the church is no longer there. So when the Holy Spirit, which is the indweller of believers, making up the body of Christ, the church, removes his presence, his residence, excuse me, not his presence, then and only then can the man of lawlessness be revealed. Consequently, the church must be removed before the man of sin is exposed. That's, if, I, if you read the text and the flow of the text, that's exactly what takes place. So the spirit will be taken out of the way in, in at least two senses. Number one, the temple in which the spirit dwells, that is the church, Will, will, be, will be removed, and after the rapture of the church, after we're caught up together to be with the Lord, right? the Lord doesn't come back down to the earth for the church. He comes in the clouds. We meet him in the clouds. We go back to heaven with him for the time the tribulation is going on, on the earth below. Where that as, that, during that time, that's when the Lord uh, brings the tribulation and the wrath of God upon the ungodly world. And then also what he is doing is he is raising up preachers, 144,000. He's going to preach the gospel. We have the two angels preaching the gospel. We have the two witnesses. We have the angels, the two witnesses preaching the gospel. And Israel realizes that they're not saved and they need Christ. So they look back to Isaiah 53 and they realize him whom they had pierced and they begin to believe. In the mid-section, the three-and-a-half-year section of the tribulation, they begin to come to Christ. And only one-third of Israel will actually, where Paul says in Romans, where all Israel will be saved, nationally they'll be saved. doesn't mean every Jew will be saved. But during that time, nationally, they will be saved in the land. And that's when, of course, uh, there's a battle with Satan, and the Lord wins, and the Lord comes, and then, then we have the millennial period after the tribulation period. So if you notice in Thessalonians, notice in verse number 8, it says, then the lawless one will be revealed, and then the Lord will slay with the, with the breath of his mouth. So the, the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth. The, the power that proceeds from the Lord Jesus is no match for the Antichrist. In the little story, the little little red riding hood and the three little pigs, the big bad wolf blew the straw house of the little pig down with ease. Of course, the Lord Jesus is uh, is good and destroys with ease the blasphemous individual by the breath of his mouth, the power of God. And of course, that really comes right out of Isaiah. Uh, 11 verse 4 where it says, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So it will be easy for the Lord to take care of the enemy and of course it will be decisive. In verse number 8 of Thessalonians 2 at the end it says, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The Lord will end it. And he ends it by just showing up. So in summary, Paul positively 
and in more detail tells us that what these events are and in what order they will occur, expressions used like now, at the proper time, in verse 6, already, in verse number 8, then. So these three, there's three groups that he's actually presenting in this text. First, there's the present events, the restraining power going on right now, the mystery of lawlessness is at work, but it's not the man of lawlessness is not revealed yet. We're in the present right now. That's happening right now. And then the future events, before the end, there's going to be the apostasy. There's going to be the restraining power that is removed. So the man of lawlessness can be revealed, and he can unleash his wickedness and his plan across the whole world. And then you have false signs and wonders that come with him uh, to deceive people. The best way to deceive people is have a little bit of magic there, right? And uh, let's, you know, sleight of hand is always a good way to deceive, and he's going to do that. And, of course, then the at the end, which is the third set of events, is that the man of lawlessness is destroyed, the day of the coming of the Lord is at hand, and the wicked perish. In verse number 10, it says in with all the deception of the wickedness of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. All right, so here's people that outright rejected the gospel and they have not been saved. So what does God promise us? Not wrath, but rest. Not judgment, but his presence. See, that's what he promises his church. And then we will come back with the Lord in the millennium to rule and reign on this earth with him. And I've been mentioning that, and I'm going to mention some of that when I talk about the perseverance of the saints next week. So here, here's the point that I want to make today at the close. Despite this unparalleled spiritual opposition, all believers... All believers will be kept secure by God and will persevere to the end. They will not apostatize. See, God will preserve all those who has, he has saved by his grace and will transport them safely to heaven. The elect will be divinely enabled to overcome and be a perseverer right to the end. And that's what it says in 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes? Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's just not basic knowledge. That is transformation. That is a whole life commitment to Christ. You know what you believe. You know in whom you believe and you entrust your whole life to him, and you know that now his plan is set before you, you are ready to live for him no matter what comes. You're not ready to step off and deny him at all. That's what a real believer is. But God enables you to do that. What's the Lord doing right now in heaven? He's interceding for the saints, right? If the Lord didn't intercede for the saints, we could never get to heaven. He's keeping us in his prayers that we would not be duped or deceived or walk away, but we'll be faithful to the end. Amen? That's God's word. Are you ready? Are you ready? I pray that you are. And if you don't know Christ, 
Now is a good time to come when the Spirit of God is speaking and the Word of God is coming to your, into your ears. Repent, believe, and trust Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning again for the, the Word of God, Lord. It is, it is so unveiling. It's so, it's so exacting. It's so detailed. Thank you, Lord, for the things that are there for our benefit, for our instruction, for our encouragement, so we can be edified, so we can know the plan of God. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't speak about these things in in some corner, but on a rooftop, so all can understand and believe. And I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you who have never come genuinely to trust you and you alone as their Lord and Savior, I pray today, if there is someone here today that you're calling to salvation, you would call them and bring them to yourself, that they may want to turn from everything they're trusting in and and trust completely in you and in your work on the cross. And I pray, Lord, you would save people. Because, uh, Lord, I pray you would continue to keep our church to be a light bearer uh, to the world. And I ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.